0: Hey everybody and welcome to episode 109 of the Freelancer Show. This week on our panel we have Reuven Lerner.
1: Hello from Chicago.
0: Curtis McHale. G'day. Eric Davis. Hey. Jeff Schoolcraft. What's up? I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Kirk Bowman.
2: Hey Chuck, how you doing?
0: Doing alright. You want to introduce yourself really quickly?
2: Sure. My name's Kirk Bowman. I run a couple of different businesses. Uh, MightyData.com is a custom software company, and ArtofValue.com is a value pricing consultancy.
0: Cool. Now, I remember I met you at New Media Expo, and we were talking about how you do your pricing, and you mentioned that it was value-based pricing, and I was like, we have to get you on the show to talk about it. And then the next week, Brendan Dunn came on and talked about value-based pricing, The thing that I thought was interesting is we talked a lot about how value-based pricing works in that episode. But it sounds like you have a little bit more of a a system around this to figure out what the right value or price is.
2: Well, I I listened to the show that Brennan did, and I thought he did a great job of talking about value selling, selling it to the customer. Mm -hmm. But I think there's more on the pricing side. When I define value pricing, I define it as two skills, the ability to identify value and then the ability to set a price. And you can put as much creativity on the pricing end as you do on trying to figure out what is the value.
0: So what what kinds of things do you need to know in order to set a proper price
2: on your work? Well, the first thing is you want to understand what is the value that's going to be created for the customer? What is the end result that they're seeking? And How is that going to impact their business? A lot of times you can determine at least some type of financial impact, but there's also other intangible things that can have even a greater impact. Quality of life, productivity, customer morale, those kind of things. Once you understand the value, then you're in a position to say, okay, what's a fair price to capture a fair return on that value? An example that I like to use is if you can imagine a bar chart with three bars, and the smallest bar is the cost that you have to deliver. The second bar is the price that you're going to set. And then the third bar is the value for the customer. Obviously, the price needs to be higher than the cost so you have a profit. But then the value to the customer needs to be higher than the price so that they have a profit.
1: Coach, just so I understand. So you've been doing software development for a while as a consultant. And have you always done value-based pricing?
2: No. So I've been in business almost 20 years. For the first 14 years, I did... Billing by the hour, which almost everyone in our industry does. But then I participated in a panel discussion at an industry conference, and I was actually the advocate for hourly billing. And there was another consultant on the panel who was advocating value pricing. And He said one thing that rang true to me. He said, if you bill by the hour, there's an arbitrary limit on your income. And being an entrepreneur at heart, my internal reaction to that was hell no.
0: Interesting. So what did you change?
2: I spent about 90 days studying value pricing after that panel discussion. And at the end of that 90 days, I decided I was going to switch my business to value pricing within a year. We started value pricing with new customers right away, but it took time to actually transition existing customers over. But we saw a 56% increase in gross revenue the first year and a 79% increase the second year.
1: That 79% was over the the increase you had the previous year? Yes. All right. I, I could go for that.
0: Yeah, you have my attention.
1: <laughs> <laughs> let, let, me, let me ask you this, though. Did you change what you were doing or just how you were measuring and pricing it?
2: Well, we also changed our processes to match. I think value pricing is really a set of beliefs. It's a philosophy. It's a business model. And so I think the way that you run a business based on value pricing is going to force you to do things differently than hourly. It's going to force you to manage projects differently. It's going to force you to communicate with the customer differently. It's going to force you to approach the process of writing proposals differently. It changes everything. So yes, not only did we change how we were doing pricing, but we changed our internal processes to match that. Now, we didn't do it all at once. We kind of learned and adjusted and of course we're still adjusting even today
0: so let me back up just a little bit so how do you determine what the value is for the customer
2: i try to get to that in the first phone call one of my favorite questions to ask is why are you doing this now why not six months ago or why not wait another six months obviously we have to talk about what it is they want but I want to try to get to the why behind the what and understand what's the pain they're having or what is the result that they think they can achieve. Sometimes I'll have to probe and ask that question different ways. But that's what I'm searching for, whether they're trying to increase revenue, whether they're trying to increase their margin, trying to control costs, trying to improve morale, uh, trying to get away from paper. You know, there's a variety of things. But I want to understand the why behind the what.
0: It seems like to me that it would be easy to figure out what the value is if it's, well, it'll save us so much, you know, uh processing power or whatever, and you can kind of convert that to dollars, you know, it, you don't need as many servers, you're not paying for as much bandwidth, or, you know, you need less space in your colo. The intangibles that I think would be a little bit trickier are things like it would be easier to maintain, or it would be, you know... It would help us, um, gather this information, but it's not really clear what the dollar value is for that. So is there a way for you to boil that down so that you, you know, you kind of have that number where it's worth it to them. And then you can do it at some point lower than that where it's worth it to you.
2: So essentially you're asking, how do you price the intangible value, the things yeah. that are hard to put a dollar amount on? Yes. Those are to be honest, a gut feel. It really is. That's the reason I call it the art of value. It's not a science. There are principles and guidelines you can follow, but at some point, there are times where you just have to say, you know what, my intuition, my instinct tells me the price should be and go with it. And the one thing I found is once you start experimenting with your pricing, you develop your pricing skills. I think pricing is something you can learn just like you can learn to code or learn to uh, do public speaking. and. The more you practice, the better you get. And I found now after practicing it for five or six years, my pricing instincts are really, really good.
1: One of the things that I've found in reading and hearing about value-based pricing, I don't see this as a bad thing for the freelancers or consultants, is it allows us to increase our rates a lot. Not because we're just being piggish, but because we are bringing a lot of value to the table. Does this automatically, though, mean that we're not going to be able to work with, say, small companies where their budgets are inherently constrained? that it only works with larger companies?
2: No, we actually predominantly work nowadays with smaller companies. We actually used to work with larger ones, and I've actually chosen to work with smaller ones because I actually find they're easy to work with and I enjoy working with them more. But you are right. It does not work for every customer. For example, if a customer is not willing to share the why, I had one of these discussions today. Literally, I had a phone call where about 50 minutes into it, the customer literally said to me, why are you asking these questions? And I said, well, I don't just take what you tell me at face value. I want to dig deeper to understand how this is going to impact your business because, quite frankly, I'm the consultant. I'm the one who's got the experience. I want to make sure that we're approaching this problem from the best point of view. He wouldn't answer the questions, so unfortunately, that was a mismatch that didn't work. But I think this is something that can be done with both small and large customers.
0: It's really interesting. I mean, what it really boils down to is if you can make their desire align with your with your value, basically, so that you're getting what you need out of it and they're getting what they need out of it, yeah, I, I really like it. So when when you come to a price, do you do the dreaded? dun-dun-dun, fixed bid?
2: I do. I do. I think, you know, uh, kind of a trick question is, are all all value pricing quotes are fixed bids, but not all fixed bids are value-based, essentially. They're not the same thing, although to the customer they may appear that way. I think one of the advantages of giving the customer, quote, a fixed price is that you're taking on risk from them and they are willing to pay for that you are providing more certainty, which I think also speaks to your positioning and your professionalism. Um, I love giving the customer a fixed price, and I tell them, look, I'm doing this because I want you to be able to buy what I do the same way you buy a car or you buy milk. You go to the store, here's the price, and let's do it. Now, obviously, with a fixed price comes a fixed scope, and so you have to have the project management skills to handle that. But for us, it's worked extremely well.
3: Very nice. Well, and on the other hand, too, even if you do like time and materials or hourly or, you know, something based on time, almost every customer I know when I talk to them about it, they do the calculations in their head like, you know, 100 hours at this rate is going to be an informal fixed bit of this much. And so by being clear up front, you can say this is what your price is going to be. And if you need to you know build into that the risk that you're taking on as a consultant, it's easier for you instead of you giving an hourly figure and the client working out the math and they're behind you.
2: I agree and quite frankly I don't want the client doing the math in their head that way because it focuses their attention on the inputs rather than the output. I want them focused on the results. I want that what they're looking to, what they're thinking about and what I'm focused on. And so Chuck a minute ago used the word alignment and that's the thing I love about value pricing is it because it forces you to align your interests meaning you the professional, your interests with the interests of the customer. If you don't do it then you can't price because you're basing your price on what is the end result that they're achieving. When a customer is focused on hours, they're just looking at the wrong thing, and it leads to just the wrong conversation, in my opinion.
1: Right, so I guess just, just earlier today, a client with whom I've done some work over the last number of months asked me to uh, give him a proposal to extend his existing software, which I know, um, to do something new. And this new functionality would allow him to get a contract, which I have to assume is going to be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I, I did it, you know, the standard, uh, you know, time materials way where I said, well, I estimate this is going to take me X number of days to do. And so the price is Y. And, you know, the whole time I was writing this, I was saying, well, but he's going to get a lot out of it. And so it would be nice to share in that. And so if I understand you correctly, the value-based way of going about this is saying, listen, I want you to get this contract because it's good for both of us. And this contract is going to be worth a lot. Thus, I'm going to give you a fixed bid, and I don't have to state it this way, right? But like, I'm going to give you a fixed bid of some proportion. It can be a small proportion of that. And that way we can get it and succeed together. Am I sort of in the right direction?
2: Yeah, you're exactly in the right direction. I mean, let's say that contract is worth a million dollars. And what you're gonna do is gonna help them land that. Seems to me a fair price for that would be a hundred thousand dollars. That's a one to ten return or ten to one return. You know, who wouldn't spend a dollar to make ten?
0: Somebody who thinks they can spend fifty cents to make ten.
2: True. But then they're looking at it from a cost perspective, not yeah. an investment perspective. And that's where the discussion's gotta go. And that's another reason I don't like the hours, because it it focuses on a cost factor and when you're doing it value based. The discussion has to go toward an investment point of view. And not everybody will look that way, but the customers I want to work with do.
0: So if they start heading the other direction, you know, they they start doing the math in their head and they're thinking, okay, well, I can find a guy and he could do it for hundred dollars an hour, and he's not going to put in a thousand hours on this. So Reuven's bidding me a hundred thousand, I could probably have some guy do it for fifty or sixty thousand. How do you steer them back toward the conversation about the value? or do you just give up and walk away and find somebody who's thinking the other way?
2: I first of all would just prefer to somebody who's thinking the same way I am who's not resisting it, right? Uh-huh. But there are customers who they've never had that conversation before, they're resistant to it, and I'm willing to take the time to edge them, to try to have that conversation. And if they will come around to that line of thinking, part of what I'm trying to do when I'm talking value with them is build my position in their eyes do they see me as the expert mm-hmm. and can i increase that the more they want to work with me the better for both of us my friend ron baker says something along the lines of the way you solve is the way you sell or that i'm getting the quote bad but He basically is saying customers should get an idea of what it's like working with you during the sales process, and that's what I try to do. By having this discussion, I'm trying to actually show them I am interested in your best outcome, and here's how I'm going to do it.
0: I think that's really interesting. How does that affect things like estimates and stuff? Because most of the estimates that I do, I have to say I'm billing hourly right now, you know, most of the estimates that I do, it basically boils down to, I think it's going to take this line longer. The timeline is going to look something like this, you know, give or take a certain percentage. And it's going to cost you this much because I'm going to spend this many hours working on it. So what, what do your estimates look like? I mean, you fix the price. So are you just giving them timeline estimates or milestone estimates?
2: First of all, I, I don't quote give traditional estimates where I put outline item, right? I don't list if there's 20 features. I don't put a price out for 20 features. What I do is I try to give the customer three options, and this gets back to what I was talking about earlier about pricing as a skill. I try to give the customer three different prices to pick from so that in their mind, there's a shift from will I work with this person to how will I work with this person. And I actually, ideally, would try to give them kind of one option that's what they're looking for, another option that's scaled down some, so if they have a tighter budget, they can pick that. And then I also try to give them something above what they're asking for. Actually, I try to dream and think and you know, throw out something that maybe somebody else has not even mentioned or offered to them. So I try to price it three different ways. Now, to get back to your question about kind of effort, I look at two different things. There's effort and duration. Effort is how much, in this case, time it's going to take to do whatever it is we're going to do. Duration is how long the project's going to run. And those aren't the same thing, right? A four-hour, quote, project is going to take 40 hours to accomplish. Well, I might schedule that over two months depending on the price and the customer and their timeline and my other commitments and so forth. We generally tend to estimate things either by days of effort or maybe half days of effort, depending on the size of the project now. We don't go down to the hour. The other thing that we do is we actually schedule the time we're going to be working on the projects in advance. Our project manager for each of our developers knows what their load is and knows the commitments are and actually schedules out, okay, this half day you're going to be doing this. Our developers, when they start a week, they know what they're going to be working on throughout the week because we try to schedule, you know, big blocks of time.
0: So the other thing that I'm curious about is with your developers, I mean, are you, do you have like salary workers or are you paying them by the hour or how does that all work out?
2: So our full-time developers are salary. We also do profit sharing for contractors and the contractors that I work with, I ask them to give me a fixed price.
0: Oh, that makes sense. So then since your costs or since your income is fixed on the project, then you know how much it's going to cost you to have the work done.
2: Exactly. And the other thing I should point out about value pricing is if you're doing it well, you should be pricing higher than you would be if you were pricing it based on hours. And that's what we found. So we actually have more margin in the project too. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
1: Well, I'm, I'm wondering though, are you able to price it higher? I mean, at a certain point, I would think the customer would say, wait a second, this is going to end up costing me a lot more than if I went down the street. So so you're just assuming, hoping that they'll see that you're looking to partner with them, really help them, give them that value. And by the combination of you talking to them in that way and doing your questions and your deep questions and also the multiple prices, the combination of all these things will convince them that it's, it's just not worth going and getting a cheaper option somewhere else?
2: Essentially, yes. I mean, one of the ways to stand out and position yourself is to do things differently than everybody else does it. That's one of the things I love about value pricing. It makes it easy to stand out because most people aren't doing it. And second, we try to do it really well. We've been doing it a long time, like many of you. We've had our businesses for several years. We've built up our credentials and our reputation and our expertise. And so that carries weight, and it's all those things combined. If there's a customer who's shopping solely on price, I'm just upfront with them. And I say, look, we're not the cheapest. And if you're just shopping based on price, I don't want to waste your time.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, and and I can definitely see that. I, I see some uh some other things that that work out well for them. I mean, I've bid projects where I gave them an estimate, and then I wind up blowing the budget, right? And I start you know start talking to them as soon as I realize I'm getting close to the budget and not done enough, you know. And so then we start having those conversations. And with this, I mean, your your risk isn't blowing the budget. It, you know, you might. Push the timeline a little bit, but that's that's the only way you're not going to deliver as agreed. And so I really really like that. And the other thing is is that uh, you know a lot of my clients they do kind of have some budget sensitivity. And so if I can make that number fit what their limitations are, then they know that they're not going to go beyond them. They just they know what the cost is going to be for the given project.
2: Exactly. And. How easy is it to stand out from your competition when you're willing to say, for this scope of work, that is the price. If the scope changes, we're going to give you something of writing with the new price and scope. Mm-hmm. How do you usually Sorry, handle just, that? At when there's a change? Yeah. We just simply say, this is a change. Would you like for us to price that? And we set the expectation. We put in our proposals that... We actually, you know, call it a guarantee. We call it a price guarantee. We say this is the price for this scope of work. If the scope of work changes, we will provide you with a change request with the new scope and price. And so we set the expectation up front.
3: Yeah, that's where I've always struggled with like fixed rate like this because we do because you end up in the heated discussion sometimes with the client about what was in scope and what wasn't right in their original document maybe had one sentence that they felt referred to this feature that you don't think is in
2: scope true and so first thing i write the scope i don't take the customer scope second i just i'm clear with the customer and and smart customers will actually ask the question they'll say well what's a change define a change and i'll say a change is something where you're asking for something that i didn't intend in the scope that i wrote and priced is I basically say, ultimately, what is the definition of a change if it's different than I intended to deliver? Why? Because I'm the one that wrote the scope and I'm the one that set the price. Now, I try to be very clear. We try to go over it. You know, we do discovery a lot of times. I remember Brendan was talking about that, about doing the discovery phase up front as a paid engagement. That's frequently what we do. projects where, you know, the, it's not just very clear what the scope is.
1: And you've, you've never or you haven't often had pushback from clients because I've also had similar problems to what Curtis was describing. The very few times I've done fixed price, if we have to do a change request or, or they have a change request and we have to change the price, there's a lot of haggling over what was and was not included. And it, it just it becomes too much of a pain.
2: Again, I think it's a skill that's practiced, but we try to set the expectation up front. That's why in our proposals, it clearly says fixed scope for fixed price. If it changes, we're going to price it. What we found is it really forces customers to think hard about what they want to add. Do you really need it? Is it really something? Another couple of techniques that we'll use. First of all, we create what we call a wish list, right? First of all, we like to add things to the project because one of the things I think is real critical to our industry is to trying to do smaller chunks, smaller projects, and deliver success. I think it's easier to build a bunch of small successes than have one big one. There's less risk, too. But also just say, you know what? That's a great idea. I don't think right now is the time. Let's put it on a wish list. And once we get phase one done, then we'll look at it. The other thing we do is we do something called a change bucket where we actually say, okay, um, I've got an attorney right now as a customer. And basically, he's engaged us because he's expecting a a large suit to kind of go forward. And he's going to need a system to help manage that. And he said, look, I can't answer all your questions right now. I said, okay, fine. Let's do a change bucket. Let's have you pay us up front you know, X thousand of dollars, and we'll just put that on deposit. And then as things come up that are new or you want to change, we'll price it, and if you agree to it, we'll just pull it out of the bucket. So both a wish list and a change bucket are tools help with that. But again, I think setting the expectation up front is the most critical thing. And yes, there are some customers where the first time there's pushback, but once they see that you mean what you're going to say and that's how you do business – most of the time it's not an issue. And if it is if it does become an issue then, you know, they're probably not going to be a customer.
0: Well, and I've had plenty of clients where consistency was more important than
3: price anyway.
2: Yeah, I mean the only reason somebody challenges your price is because they don't see the value.
3: Yep. I've actually used the wish list myself of clients and they like it cuz some of those ideas they have it's just it's like a flash in the sky idea and like oh I want to do this but then once they let it settle for a little bit, they actually come back at it with fresh eyes and like, well, it's not really that big of a deal. But a couple of projects were basically phase two, phase three, phase four was basically just going through the wish list and just assembling things into logical blocks and then pricing it out and doing the work. So that worked really good. Um, and they knew what was in scope because we were able to talk about the wish list things, you know, before we actually worked on them.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. That's been our experience. It's a great, great tool.
3: Do you ever get longer
0: term projects? I mean something that you know may last a year or two and how do you price that? Do you just price one chunk at a time or yeah, how do you how do you work that out where, you know, they're going to give you if they pay for it all up front, they're going to be paying for a year or more's worth of work?
2: So, if it's project based work where we can have a clear scope and a clear outcome, then I'll just want to break that up into a lot of smaller projects. So, say it's a two year project, I would try to, you know, divide that up, say, into four three quarter projects, or four, or I guess I'm doing the math wrong, eight 90 day projects, so to speak, if it's two years. Uh-huh. We have had a uh, some situations where customers come to us and they just want commitment and they really don't want to worry about scope. They just want us to start working on it. They want to be able to change their mind. Basically, they want us to take on more risk to work with them, right? Mm-hmm. In my mind, an unclear scope is more risk. So in those situations, we'll do it on retainer. In my opinion, retainer should be almost the highest price you charge because retainer is basically saying, I want you I want all you have available, your time, your skill, your effort, whatever, focused on this. Uh, I'm going to change. I'm going to require you to change. You're going to have to help manage this. So, yeah, we had an engagement that was an extremely large monthly retainer, Uh, and we did it that way for almost two years. So we have done that, but it has to be the right customer. Most customers are not ready for a retainer, not the kind of retainer I'm talking about. You know, this is not, hey, give me five hours a month. No, this is, you know, hey, I want a significant commitment and I want to be able to be flexible. And to me, being flexible commands a price.
0: So one other thing, you you've we've talked a little bit about the, the nature of the, the bids that you're giving and, you know, here's the value you're going to get and here's the price you're going to pay. Um, in other words, here's the scope and here's the price. Have you ever had things work out where you uh, misread what the scope was or, you know, you wound up, spending a whole lot more time or money meeting the proposal as opposed to, you know, what you thought it would cost. I, yeah. I, I guess the Essentially, question is the people see fixed bids as risky because you may wind up spending more time than the price makes it worth it to you.
2: Yeah. So I, I think the question you're asking is, do we make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Do we underprice it? Do we miss the scope? Sure we do. Not every project goes the way we want, right? Whether it's because we engage a customer who seems like a good fit, but then we get into it and find out they're not, or there's a change in personnel, or I just wrote something that that I thought was clear and you know what? Yet it wasn't. Yes, we learn, we get better, we don't nail everyone, but we're we're doing better on the majority of them. And typically when we learn from one, you know, we're we turn that same mistake twice.
1: And the value based pricing means that you have enough of a cushion there that if you're off by a bit, you're not going to suffer too terribly.
2: Exactly. And, and obviously part of those discussions, we go, okay, we've got a question about scope. It's, it's, you know, whether I think it's clear or not, the customer's perception is reality, right? And so I go, okay, well, what's the value of this customer, right? For this year, for next year? Um, do I like working with them? Am I willing to do this just because I love the relationship and love the customer, or is this clearly something that was way, way out of scope? Uh, I'll give you an example. We have had one recently where the customer, we did work for them like a year ago, and they came back to us like just recently, and something happened like right in the, and they're going like, well, what about that? We're like, well, that was in between two projects. We didn't even touch the system then, right? So sometimes like that, it's very clear. Other times, you know, you got you got to make some decisions, and that's why there's an art to it but this is a framework, it's a business model that helps us make sure we're working with the right people in a way that removes uncertainty for the customer. I'm taking on more uncertainty, but I'm removing it for them.
1: Right, that, it's funny. Like I mean, I've been doing hourly or daily pricing for a long time now, and I can understand why having a fixed-price bid is more reassuring for the client. Right? They, they don't think that they're basically opening a blank check and they have no idea what they're going to have to write at the end of the project. So that fixed price, though, comes with a cost. The cost is, you know, they're, they're, they're paying for their security. They're paying for a price for knowing how much they're going to pay in the end, for not having to absorb the risk. So I can see what you're saying. But at the same time, I guess I'm just nervous because I've been on so many projects where things changed, and then there were arguments over the scope, and it was so incredibly unpleasant. It's, it's easier in many ways for me to just work on an hourly or daily basis at least for now. But I, 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 you're pretty convincing, let me tell you that.
2: <laughs> well, let me, let me throw out uh, one other thing to think about too. One of the things we do with value pricing is we ask for 100% up front. And majority of the time, customers are willing to do that. And I know some customers, they want to hold back payment because they feel like it gives them control, but we found just the opposite. We found the customers that we will go more all out and we will actually go above and beyond are the ones who pay us up front, get the money out of the way so that we can just serve the hell out of them. And that's what I love is people who trust me enough to say, you know what, we know you're going to do it. And then we go above and beyond. We also look for ways to take a new look at something and go, okay, what's valuable to what we do from the customer's perspective? For example, I feel like the actual coding that we do is the least valuable thing. The most I feel like, for example, the support we do on the end is more valuable. The helping them learn how to test that it functions the way they want is more valuable. So one thing we've done recently in proposals is we've we've actually kind of split testing into two categories. And at a lower price, um, they do more of the testing. At a higher price, we do more of the testing. And why do we do that? Cause we found out testing is something that's extremely valuable to them. And so we tied it to a price. And also what that does is it clearly shows that if they pick the lower price, well, if we offered it and they didn't pick it, then by definition, it's not exclude. It's not included.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I really like that where, you know, they can choose what level
2: of service they want. Exactly. Exactly. Because customers are going to have an idea of a budget. But you know, here's the thing. Those budgets can change. They can and will change. I've had several experiences where going into it, it's X, and so X wound up being, you know, the middle or the lower option, and they wound up picking a price higher. Why? Because they saw more value.
0: So for things like testing, we've we've had the conversation before about how to convince our clients whether, you know, that they need testing or that they ought to have testing is the testing you're talking about things like unit tests in the code or are we talking about more along the lines of having a person or an automated script uh, load the page and go click through it?
2: So, you know, unit testing could be part of what we offer, but really what we're talking about is what is our level of internal review? We always do an internal review, but we offer that we will do like a secondary extra internal review. Uh-huh. Um, we also provide test cases to our customers' use cases, and we say, these are the things you need to test. And if you don't test them, by, you know, you you've missed the deadline. And we, we follow up. We say, look, great. You've tested these eight things, but these five others you haven't tested. We need you to test those and give us feedback. So we've actually tried to be proactive in putting more effort into helping them do that, holding them accountable. One of the reasons it works so well for us is we've got an outstanding project manager and she's dedicated to managing projects. She's not a developer and she's able to, you know, focus and see, okay, How's this customer doing on testing? Are they running behind or or those kind of things? With our approach, you have to be willing to hold the customer accountable to those deadlines and you have to be able to be consistent, like you said earlier.
0: So you mentioned that there were some other things that changed in your process, both your sales process and your development process, based on value-based pricing. Um, We've talked about a lot of those. Did we miss any? Are there any that are not as obvious?
2: I would say... Probably the one of the biggest changes is just kind of reiterate what I said earlier. Even in that first conversation, there was a point when I first started doing this where I didn't start the value conversation early. I kind of felt like I had to talk more about what they wanted. I kind of got to the point where the first conversation, I really want to talk more about why. I have to let them talk a little bit about what so I have some context, but I really try to go to talking about why as early as possible. Because not only does it differentiate, but it helps me qualify them. Are they willing to have the conversation? Do they have a real problem that I can help solve and that should be solved? So that's one thing is just getting confidence to have that value conversation. It's definitely influenced our project management process. And, I, you know, I've talked quite a bit about that already. But, yeah, everything that we've done. I mean, the way we do business now is so different. Very few things that you see now would you have seen five years ago it it influences everything you know for example in our proposals i on the first page i try to put in the proposal a section that says this is the value the customer will receive by completing this project and i try to have bullet points i go back to my notes from those early conversations and i try to write out the things that i thought were the things they said they were wanting and that's where i get some of the most positive feedback is when i'm Walking a customer through a proposal, and we go through that section, I always say, look, is that on target? Did I make, you know, do you think that's right? Would you revise it? Would you change it? And usually I get one of two answers. Either you're right on target, or they say most of it's good, but here's something else. And here's the cool thing. Nine nips out of ten, that extra thing they add is not something I heard about before. Because, But but by focusing on that, it got their mind going, and so they actually brought something up, heard before, wasn't aware of. So. To find a specific example of your question, i say it's just woven all through our conversation over the show.
1: So, Cook, I, I do, in addition to software development, I also do a lot of training and teaching of uh, programmers. And I feel like there I'm adding a huge amount of value to a company because I'm coming in, I'm teaching 10 or 20 of their developers either a new technology they did not know before that lets them work faster or to improve in using that technology. And I'm tempted to use value-based pricing there Especially since I know what the time scope is. So, you know, it's, it's a fixed price. Uh, but I'm not quite sure how to attack that. Um, and I've even thought about, well, maybe I can make the training part of a larger package where I say, we're going to make your programmers more productive and I'll work with them before and during and after the training to improve their processes and call it that. Do you have, do you have any advice on, on how to apply value-based training, to, uh, value-based pricing to training?
2: Sure. Um, so training slash and or coaching. Again, I think one of the best tools you can take into that type of business is options where you say, okay, the base thing they're asking for is they want, you know, they want four sessions for eight coders on this, right? Well, what are the things you can add value? So, for example, you could offer to do pre-interviews, right? You could do screening. You could offer to do post-coaching. You could offer to make yourself available once a week group. Question and answer thing, you know, like Cliff does in podcasting A to Z, you could offer, you know, possibly videos you could offer to do code sharing, you could even the access they have to you. So, for example, in in the past, we have said, okay. Uh, access to us by email is this price. If you want to be able to do phone call, it's this price. So just think about what are the different ways you can provide access to your knowledge and what are the things you can add. Even ask them. Say, look, what, what would make this training more valuable? What do you think, in addition to just the training education sessions, what else would help you succeed? What else would you like to see? Those kind of things. You know, there's so many online training programs, and one of the things I'm always looking for is where somebody who's being real creative. I saw one the other day. It was on a a couple that does kind of marriage counseling, and so all their products are around marriage and intimacy. And they had something really clever. They will answer one question via email for ten dollars, or you can ask an unlimited number of questions via email in a month for ninety nine bucks. I just thought that was creative. I doubt hardly anybody picks the ten dollar option. You know, what are they doing there? They're anchoring, right? They're saying, well, one question's worth 10. You can have unlimited for 99. Uh, And they set parameters, right? They say, we only answer questions Monday through Thursday. We'll only do one question at a time. We only answer between nine and five. Parameters that make it workable for them. But look for that type of opportunity. And try to find something you can offer that maybe... Nobody else is doing, and one of the best ways to do that is go to the people you've done it for in the past and have a conversation. Say, what could we have done to make that better? Now that you've been through it, is there is there something that you can see that if I'd offered it, you would it would have been better for you? So again, my my short answer is options.
1: Very neat.
0: It's really an interesting way of of thinking about it too, where you have the the different value adds, and and again, I mean, they can kind of pick what what they care about. I, I really like it, and, and there are so many ways to apply it to so many other things, too.
1: Kirk, is there a chance that uh, – I know I'm putting you on the spot here. Is there a chance that you have a um, sample price proposal that's in this spirit that we could maybe share with our listeners? I would
2: be obviously, happy to obviously go. Obviously,
1: I don't want you to like violate confidence of your, uh, your clients, but I'm just curious to see what something like that would look like.
2: Sure. i tell you what, I'll make the commitment to kind of look through past proposals, probably ones that are turned down. So, you know, look for one where um, we actually didn't sell it and maybe see if I can find one of those and strip some of the things out and and try to give a framework or something like that.
0: Yeah, that would be really interesting. And then if you can give
2: that to Mandy, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah.
0: All right. Well, anything else before we get into the picks?
2: I appreciate you guys having me on. This has been a fun discussion. Uh, I'll just add, I really enjoyed listening to the episode you did with Brendan, because I thought he did a great job of talking about how to sell value. Uh, I also really enjoyed the episode that you guys did. I think, you know, Curtis, you're on the call, but I think you were the one that was kind of the guest that we talked about pricing. I actually learned some things out of that, you know, and I know you've done some writing and stuff about pricing as well, but I've enjoyed those two shows in Thanks. particular, so...
0: Yeah, this this show and the weekly pricing show have really made me think about how I'm doing things. So, all right, well, let's go ahead and do the picks. Eric, do you want to start us with picks?
3: Sure. Uh, so, a pick today I found is a blog called No More Forever Projects. Uh, it's a short blog. Someone wrote about how. Um, you'll start a project, and the, your intention is to always do it. It's going to be there forever. It's never going to end, and all that. And just kind of the guilt you get if you decide it's not for you, or it turns out the project just it's not as interesting as you thought. Um, so it's a nice kind of you know change of perspective about when you start something new or anything that's kind of long term. All right, Curtis, what are your picks? you am gonna stick with one. I'm gonna pick Ghostery today, and it's a Chrome plugin that, uh, blocks all external scripts if you don't want them to run. So I was quite surprised at a few sites that all the ads they were running and everything else, all the ways they wanted to track me. And I, you know, could only think of one that was really useful, but that's what I've installed.
4: Cool. Jeff, what are your picks? Uh, so I have two. I would add three. The third, I'll, well, I'll have three, but I, we can't link to the third one. It was, uh, Sound Source by Rogue Amoeba. And it lets you switch input from speakers to headphones. I had to steal it off my old Mac to put it on my new one. I couldn't find a download link on Rogue Amoeba's site. Uh, the other two, uh, ones, uh, cyberacoustics, uh, speaker system, and I'll pass the link along, but, uh, and they're not the best speakers in the world, but the interesting thing is they have like this little puck that you can put on your desk, and it has a headphone jack and an aux jack. So I don't have to, dig around to try to plug in my headphones. And if I want to listen to like a podcast on the phone, Bluetooth, I haven't figured out Bluetooth or bothered to try so I can aux input the phone. And the last one is uh Goodreads. Uh, I don't know if we've ever picked that before or not, but it fills up my fiction reading list. I go to like the top space opera novels or something and start at the top and work my way down. It keeps me busy.
0: That's it. Yeah. In fact, if any of the rest of you guys have Goodreads accounts, go ahead and put your links in there, too. Reuben, what are your picks?
1: Okay, I've got only one pick for this week, and you will not be surprised to hear. It is PhD Comics. For those of you who are familiar with it, or basically it's like the Dilbert for graduate students, and I can tell you it's all true. Perhaps it's not true enough. So, anyway, uh, I think even people who are not in graduate school can enjoy it.
0: Very nice. I had somebody introduce me to a new blogging platform. It's called Ghost. It's uh, based on Node.js. On top of that, another thing that I found that he pointed out to me was that DigitalOcean actually has a Ghost image, like an image that has Ghost on it. So you can uh, set up a machine and it already has Ghost on it and it's ready to go. Um, They have a bunch of other ones too, like Redmine and stuff like that. So it's it's pretty cool too. I've been pretty happy with them. And I've actually been using... The DigitalOcean plugin to provision servers with Chef. Anyway, Kirk, what picks do you have for us?
2: So I've got three picks kind of related to our topic. And I think at least one of these, it may have been mentioned on the show before. But uh, the first is a guy's at freshbooks.com called Breaking the Time Barrier. And it's really just, it's kind of a parable about value pricing. And it's done from a web developer's perspective. And it basically is a web developer who bills by the hour kind of having a conversation with a more experienced web developer who does value pricing. And so it's just a great way to kind of introduce yourself. The second pick is by uh, a gentleman who is kind of a sales and marketing consultant in the design agency space, uh, a guy named Blair Enns. His online book, he basically, you can buy the ebook or the hard copy, or you can just read it for free on his website. It's called win without pitching. uh, And he calls it a manifesto. So that's also another great resource. Both those are free. Uh, the third pick is uh, by Ron Baker. Ron is kind of one of the leading thought leaders uh, for value pricing. Uh, he's been writing about it for 20 years. His latest book, it's been out a couple years, is called Implementing Value Pricing. Um, so you can find that on Amazon, Fifty, $50, $60 book. But it's if you want to go really in-depth into this topic, it's a great read. He spends the first two-thirds of the book talking about kind of what is the history and the case for value pricing? Why should you do it? And he basically tries to handle almost any objection somebody might have. And then the last third of the book, he says, okay, here are eight concrete steps to implement value pricing. Um, it's about a 300-page book, and it's also kind of a personal favorite because my software company's mentioned. Cool.
0: Very nice. So if people want to get a hold of you, they want to know more about you, find your company, what are the best ways to do that?
2: Sure. So probably two best ways. Um, first, our website is artofvalue.com. And then on Twitter, I'm at artofvalue. So you can find us both of those ways. Would love to get feedback from people, what they thought of the episode, what questions they may have. Would love to continue the conversation.
0: All right. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show then. Thanks again for coming, Kirk. Really appreciate your input. And hopefully this will get some folks thinking about other ways that they can uh, set prices for their clients and serve them well.
2: Well, I appreciate you inviting me on the show. It's been a fun discussion. And again, thank you very much. Hosting and
0: bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. deliver your content fast with Cashfly, visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum.